If you have an adult human with trillions of cells in their body, you cannot have one injection with a CRISPR protein and have it modify every single cell in their body. You can't like Captain America it, right? Okay, um, darn. That's not possible, <laughs> right? I know. <laughs> that's not possible at this time right now. What you can do is you can take a, a certain amount of cells, so say a bone marrow, extract them, put the CRISPR in so that way you modify the DNA of those cells and then take those modified cells, put them back in the body and those modified cells will continue to reproduce. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. Jordan Griffin, thank you so much for joining me on Speculative Sandbox. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm super happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you on here too, because you you kind of showed up in my inbox because you filled out my form and you told me that you had this knowledge about gene editing. And that got me really excited because what better way to learn about this than from someone who actually knows the science behind it. So how about you share a little bit about yourself and your projects that you're currently working on? Awesome. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, uh, my undergrad is in biology. I have a degree in biological sciences. And so my undergrad was kind of split into two for the first half of my undergrad. I uh, worked on um, physiology and psychophysiology. So looking at specifically, I interned at a diffractive optics lab, which is a really fancy way of saying lights and lasers and mirrors found that mm. wasn't quite for me. So then I interned at a, a neurogenetics laboratory. And that was really fascinating. So we looked at um, what in someone's DNA causes their neurons to go certain pathways in their bodies to create certain proteins and how does that affect their behavior and their physiology. Um, so I'm very, very interested in the connection between genes and uh, what that looks like in uh, an extant life form. So genes are basically what inform a lot of things about our bodies, including how things talk to each other. I am science is not my strong suit. So I'm definitely going to lean into like not knowing a lot. So you can definitely be the expert here. But did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the way I like to think about it is our DNA and the DNA of any organism is a lot like a cookbook, where it has all of the recipes, but it's really up to the body and environmental factors can play a role into this as well as to which recipes actually get made. So every cell in your body has the whole cookbook. But if you think about, say, your pancreas, your pancreas does not need to make red blood cells, right? Other parts of the body are going to do that. So your pancreas only needs the pancreas part of the cookbook. Interesting. And then what happens if the cookbook is a little wrong? So whatever is transcribed uh, will get will influence what proteins are being made in the body. And so this is where mutations come into, into play. And mutations, um, as just a word, are benign. You can have a mutation that does nothing. You can have a mutation that gives an advantage and you can have a mutation that gives a disadvantage. It completely depends on the mutation. And so when that recipe changes, um, it will entirely depend on the change that has resulted in the protein that is being coded for. And that change can be anything from, you know, over really long spans of time and in very large populations, anything from spurring forward evolution. So when we look at, you know, why are zebras black and white or uh, why do trees grow certain ways? Those are all written in their DNA. And those mutations came about uh, over a very long period of time. So mutations are natural. Is gene editing just a way that we are taking over that mutation and, and controlling the mutation? Yeah, it's a really good way of thinking about it in that um, when genes are transcribed and when your cells have to make new cells, they have to copy that cookbook as closely as they can. And there are always going to be errors in that our cells are not perfect because nothing mm -hmm. is perfect. Um, and, and so when we look at something like CRISPR, which is a very intentional going in taking out a part of that recipe and putting in a different part of that recipe, we are doing something that nature does very naturally, but with a lot of intention. Um, and that comes with a lot of responsibility. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about, both in fiction and in real life. 
because you're also a writer, an author, right? Yes, thank you. Um, so I am a speculative fiction author. Um, I earned my MFA from Pacific University and I uh, have a couple short stories and uh, a novel that I just finished, which is kind of on this topic, looking at what would happen if we have genetically and cybernetically enhanced humans. What does that look like and what are the ethics of that? So you're saying one day we might have our own form of superheroes? I, uh, in <laughs> fiction, certainly, I would hesitate to say in real life, only because when we're dealing with genes and when we're dealing with intentionally changing a DNA pattern, we want to make sure that we're very responsible with that. Um, and even though we've sequenced the entire human genome, we don't necessarily know what all of those genes do. And changing a whole lot of them all at once is probably not advisable. Mm, okay. Well, before we get into, I mean, we've already gotten a little bit technical, but before we get even more technical, I have some icebreaker questions for you just to get you warmed up. You ready? Awesome. Okay. These are pretty easy and then we'll segue into the topic, but complete the sentence, peanut butter and? Jelly. Okay. Who is your favorite superhero and why? Or maybe genetically modified character and why? Ooh, um, I love a good Deadpool just because... Um when Deadpool kind of came around, it was so antithesis to the idea of superheroes and the idea that uh, a perfectly wretched person could still do good things. Mm. Um, I love that. And I love his humor. Um, and it was kind of refreshing as, you know, maybe we don't all need to be America's golden boy and be perfect our entire lives before we can do good things. Mm, that's a great point. So if you could scientifically change anything about your body, what would it be? Oh, good question. I know I got into the hard ones a little quickly, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's interesting because I feel like, so I am fairly young, I'm 26, and I feel like I just got to a point where I like my body and where I trust my body to kind of handle me through the world. So I think if I had any improvements, they would be cognitive. Um, I would love to, you know, be able to do more sums in my head or kind of have these extraterrestrial powers that we think of when we think of superheroes um mm. i don't know if that's possible with gene editing we have no evidence that you know our genes would give us the ability to read minds but i would love that that would be really cool that, that would be really awesome because i feel like when you look at and maybe mind reading is a bit of a stretch but when you think about like plants and how plants communicate with each other um like through like webs i've, I've heard that like trees will communicate through the moss or the mushroom network on the ground or something like that and of course it's not you, you well we can't hear it. maybe they're hearing things but I always think like can we tap into other forms of communication or reading um kind of similar to uh avatar like right the movie where mm -hmm. they can communicate through life forms just touching or something like that yeah and it brings up a good point about um Communitive living or like symbiotic living, because the reason trees can communicate, as far as we know, is through a mycorrhizome network through their roots. And so uh, on their roots grow these uh, like fungal organisms, these bacterial organisms. I don't know if it's a fungus or a bacteria, so I'm just going to say it's one mm -hmm. of the two. Um, and the the hormones and the proteins that those organisms produce is what allow trees to communicate. And the trees, if the tree is experiencing a drought or something similar, it can communicate that through uh, physiological differences in its uh, fluid that's moving up and down through the bark or things like that to those organisms. And those organisms can tell the other trees that it's connected to. So it would be fascinating and amazing to be able to understand other organisms and, and other organisms that help us thrive. That would be really cool. So then what, okay, I we kind of went into this a little bit and I'll just say my whole sentence question and we can kind of work through it. What is gene editing? What are we gene editing? And why are we gene editing? It's supposed to be like the introduction. <laughs> cool, okay, so we'll start with the first one. What is gene editing? So as we uh, talked about a little bit, our DNA and the DNA of any organism on planet earth uh, is essentially a giant recipe book. And that recipe book is going to vary in size depending on what the organism needs. So if the organism is single-celled and only needs a few proteins, then that cookbook is going to be much smaller than, say, a human cookbook, um, where we have trillions of cells in our bodies 
And we have uh, been evolving for so long that some of those recipes are even just gibberish and we don't know what they do and they don't seem like they do anything, but we still have those pages from years and years and years of evolution. Mm. Um, but we also have such sophisticated systems that we need a whole lot of recipes because we need to be able to uh, build a heart and a brain and a, all of the things that are inside of us. So gene editing is the ability to artificially create mutations or changes in the recipe book in that DNA um, to achieve a desired outcome. So then I think the second question is, what are we gene editing, right? Mm -hmm. Perfect. So we use gene editing, and I think a lot of us go automatically to like superheroes. But what we do gene editing with much more is uh, agriculture. So we have many plants that have induced mutations, which allow them to produce more fruit or produce more food or uh, flower multiple times a year or grow in environments that they wouldn't normally grow in. And so the ability to gene edit has actually allowed us to sustain a food population um, or a food supply that is able to sustain our growing population. I've heard of that. Um, we have a corn farm, I guess you can say that's been, it's with Bayer and they are made to live off of less water. So like drought resistant corn and they're smaller, but you can pack them all in and grow a lot more of them in one spot. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about corn is the main food for most livestock animals uh, in the U.S., then it makes a whole lot of sense that we would want to grow a lot of corn very quickly and be able to grow it in places where corn maybe wouldn't normally grow. Mm -hmm. um, because if you take a barren patch of land and you're able to make something grow, then you have used that land in a way that is sustainable for a human population. Now, that's not getting into ecological issues with that, but from a genetic perspective, um, it is definitely beneficial to be able to grow food to sustain a growing population. So that is a great what and why. Uh, it, are there other things that we are gene editing besides food? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if we want to look at humans, because, and this is where I think the stories are, uh, at least for me, very uh, profound, is because I'm definitely a character first type of writer. I'm so interested in characters and what they go through. Um, so there are a couple FDA approved um trials going on right now for CRISPR medicines. Um, the first one is a sickle cell treatment where the uh, patients had bone marrow that was extracted from them. Um, then that bone marrow was put through a CRISPR treatment so that when their bone marrow made those red blood cells, they would make functional red blood cells instead of sickle celled red blood cells. Um, like I said, that is a trial treatment. So far, I think the treatment, the uh, trial was started two years ago. And out of 45 patients, 22 uh, are still seeing positive results and have not had a sickle cell uh, anemia attack, which is wow, amazing. Wow, that is amazing. So can you walk us through the CRISPR tech? Yes. Uh, so CRISPR is a protein and um, essentially it is a customizable protein where you can tell CRISPR, what sequence to attach to. So you tell it where to start, and then it has a sequence that it is going to put into the DNA. So you can add to the DNA, or more likely what is going on is you will have a deletion of a piece of DNA that is doing something that you don't want it to do, such as making sickle cell red blood cells. And then that CRISPR protein will be able to insert the new piece of DNA, which would be a functional red blood cell. Wow. Okay. So how, and how does this done? It's done through injections or do you have to do like a bigger procedure than that? It, so it depends on what level you want to talk about on the macro level from the patient's perspective. Yes, it is a, a like a blood draw kind of a thing. In, in this case, the sickle cell, it would be a bone marrow draw. Um, and then in the lab, uh, you would have CRISPR in solution. And that solution would then be mixed with the bone marrow. Now on a micro level, when you're looking at what's happening in the actual cell, so your DNA is a whole bunch of letters, right? And they're uh, letters that repeat in specific patterns. And so what you do is you attach the pattern that you want the CRISPR to find, and that's your starting marker. So the CRISPR will attach to that specific sequence that you give it. And then whatever it's going to do, it will do. So if you need to remove however much comes after it, it will remove. 
and then it will reinsert whatever you want it to insert. Um, and the reason it's able to do that is because our DNA connects together in a very specific repeating pattern. We know what that pattern is. And so uh, we're able to, if we know what the pattern is that we want to attach to, we just find the correct puzzle piece. Okay, so I'm I'm hoping to get this right. So in this case, the example you gave, we, we were trying to influence blood cells. So that's why it involved bone marrow, because is that where does that how does how is that related <laughs> yes sorry thank you thank you for bringing me back so uh your all red blood cells in the human body are made in the long bones in the marrow okay. of your long bones um so that would include your uh, femurs your tibia your um humerus places like that so if you can extract bone marrow from those places repair that bone marrow and then put it back into the bone then those cells will continue to carry that correct recipe as they replicate and divide. So what does the heart make? Or does the heart just pump blood? The heart pumps blood. And um, I, I want to be very careful about like things that, you know, I don't entirely know off the top of my head. As far as I know, the heart makes no proteins. Okay. Um, if there is anybody who is well-versed in cardiology, I would love to know if I'm correct on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh I'm gonna ask so many great questions and because I'm I when I'm that person that just like stares and because I, I think of everything in science and then I'm like but how does this relate to this and how does it relate to that okay so in this case DNA where is DNA in your body is it in everything or is it in the bone marrow like where does it source every single cell so every okay. single cell in your body that has a nucleus will have DNA because DNA is inside of the nucleus of a cell the only cells in your body um that I know of off the top of my head that don't have a nucleus are your blood cells. And that includes red and white, I believe. Okay. White so might you, have a nucleus, but. If you want to influence or change or modify a DNA, you have to introduce it. And then does it slowly just get replicated throughout? Like, do you still have some of your old DNA? Like, how does that transference work? Yeah, exactly. So this is why, um, and, and uh, I know we were going to talk about like, things that are not possible right now in fiction. And we can kind of go into this a little bit. So if you have an adult human with trillions of cells in their body, you cannot have one injection with a CRISPR protein and have it modify every single cell in their body. You can't like Captain America it, right? Okay, um, darn. That's not possible, right? I know. <laughs> that's not possible at this time right now. What you can do is you can take a, a certain amount of cells, so say a bone marrow, extract them, Put the CRISPR in so that way you modify the DNA of those cells and then take those modified cells, put them back in the body, and those modified cells will continue to reproduce. So, ah. yes, you will still have your old DNA and you will have the new DNA. And ho hopefully, eventually, um, those modified DNA cells will do so much better that those will be the, the majority of the cells that you have left. Oh, so the old one will evolve out and the right. new one will, will become the more dominant or would take over, hopefully. Yeah, more so that they would just uh, be more functional. And so okay. they would able to produce more of what your body needs. So you'd still have your old ones. Um, but as those old ones are not producing what the body needs, you just wouldn't use them as much. Okay. And are so, well, before I get to this, because one of the things you mentioned was gene editing as a consumer product, which I want to get to. But I guess, what are we trying to solve with gene editing with our bodies? Is it to just like um, eradicate cancer? Is it to just get rid of like diseases? What What is the end goal? To improve performance? What was a realistic yeah, so end goal? Right now, our in science, our realistic end goal is to treat diseases that have a genetic cause with no known treatment. So if you look at sickle cell anemia, sickle cell anemia is a disorder of the blood and it is when uh, red blood cells are, instead of being circular and able to hold uh, four iron molecules and, and for um, being able to maximize that oxygen holding and moving around the body, they are curved like a sickle. And that curve means they cannot hold nearly as much oxygen as a functional red blood cell. And so people with sickle cell anemia have a really hard time um, breathing. They have a hard time with anything that causes an increased oxygen intake. So sports, right? Um, even getting really excited where your heart rate is going to increase, that can be a real problem for people with sickle cell anemia. Um, from what I understand, it's also quite painful 
just because those uh, sickle cells don't move through the capillaries correctly. Um, and so you can get clots, you can get all of those things. So sickle cell anemia right now has no treatment, wow. but we know that it is in the DNA. We know the gene that causes sickle cell anemia. It's one gene, which is very rare in the body that one gene causes one thing. And so CRISPR is a perfect uh, tool for that because we can take out that single defective gene and put in an effective gene. And those people no longer have to live with this incredibly debilitating situation. That's amazing. Uh, so there's a lot of great benefits to this science. It, does, it doesn't have to be immediately scary as what some people might think. Um, although I'm sure there's, we'll go over the pros and cons in a minute, but let's get to the consumer product. So can gene editing become a consumer product? Yes. And I, um, I think that in a lot of ways it already is um, and not in humans right now. And that's because uh, most countries with the technology that is required to successfully use CRISPR have very strict rules about experimentation on humans. But experimentation in agriculture has uh, much less rules. And so there are farmers who are requesting seeds with specific traits. You know, I need a seed that grows at this time, or I need a seed that can thrive with this amount of water. And so there is some consumer CRISPR, um, and I don't know if CRISPR is specifically what is being used, but there is some consumer gene editing that is already going on when we talk about um, agriculture specifically. Interesting. Okay. So then I, when I looked up CRISPR, I kept getting CRISPR baby controversy. So are we working with, in this case, we're looking at babies, CRISPR baby uh, let's see, Lulu and Nana controversy. Are you familiar with that at all? Is it the um, the twins who were born uh, in China? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm familiar with this. Okay. So is this related to another note I have, which was girls are supposedly more resistant to HIV or is that something completely different? <laughs> How many um, controversies as, are there? <laughs> as a population, no, girls are not more resistant to HIV. Um, in fact, 53% of all HIV infections worldwide are women. And um, I found that specifically because when I saw that this was a topic, I was like, I've never heard that before. I need to go make sure that, um, you know, this isn't something that I've missed. So as a category, women are not more, um, more immune to HIV. In this specific case, what um, this case out of China was, was a uh, a couple where the father was known HIV positive and the mother was not. And so the couple underwent uh, in vitro fertilization. Okay. And against the scientific community, the doctor who was in charge of uh, this experiment used CRISPR to induce what he hoped was an HIV resistance uh, in the babies. Um, and the entire medical community and the scientific community freaked out and uh, kind of blackmailed, or not blackmailed, sorry, blacklisted, blacklisted. him yeah, mm -hmm. from um, scientific study any further. Um, and the reason is because he uh, modified what is called the germline. So when we are talking about CRISPR and we're talking about gene editing, one thing that scientists have decided we don't want to do is to allow a CRISPR-induced mutation to pass down from parent to child. And okay. the reason is um, when those cells are being made, when the reproductive cells are being made in the body, there's a shuffling of genes that can happen. And those genes can kind of shuffle in really weird ways. And we see this in a really fun way where, you know, you say, I have my mom's eyes, but my dad's nose and my mom's personality. Um, you know, we get this kind of mix of humans. When you have a modified gene that you don't know if it'll stay together, you don't know if where it'll go, you don't know how it'll interact with other genes, that can be a very scary thing to put into the population. And mm -hmm. so that's why this experiment was kind of condemned from the scientific community, because that germline was, as far as I know, was impacted. So, I mean, because you're not only impacting those babies, but let's say they grow and then they reproduce, the question is like, what's going to happen to their offspring as well? Right. Yeah, exactly. And the so the mutation specifically that this doctor uh, went for is a um, a marker on the white blood cell called CCR5. And that marker specifically is known to uh, induce HIV immunity. And the reason is uh, there's the CCR5 gene codes for a protein. 
that um, essentially allows T cells to interact with the white blood cell. And those T cells are the ones that are going to point out infectious diseases. The T cell goes over here and the white blood cell moves and devours that dangerous thing. Well, HIV simulates T cells. And so HIV is able to connect to that receptor and then um, harm right the, the rest of the immune system. So by damaging that receptor, um, the scientists hoped that he would be able to prevent this connection of the HIV virus and the white blood cell. And would the you say issue... he was successful in doing that? Uh, last that I checked, one of the babies did have a successful CCR5 Delta 32 mutation, and the other one did not, or it was unknown. Oh. Um, so yeah, a 50% success rate while amazing in a research setting is not great when we're so worried about did this even work when it shouldn't have been done in the first place gotcha and i'm sorry you were saying something i interrupted you what were you saying oh i'm um, sorry i was saying that we often don't know um how genes interact with other parts of the body so there's another example of uh, an hiv resistance and that is the tnpo3 um protein and a mutation in that protein will also cause HIV resistance, but a mutation in that protein will cause um, muscular dystrophy as well. Oh, no. So, right. So it becomes, okay, you know, what are we trying to do here? And do we know enough about all the different things that a single gene can do? Because they can have many, many, many roles in the body that we're comfortable changing it. Do you think we're going to get to a point where we will become more informed and we're going to start? doing all of these modifications to ourselves? Um, I think we will get to a point where we start doing modifications with ourselves without the relative knowledge. And I mean, it's already started. There are um, places that you can find like quote unquote at home CRISPR kits. And let me just say right now, please, please, please do not do that. Please find a like licensed medical professional with relevant training and experience before injecting anything into your body. Oh my gosh, um, to do what to yourself? To solve illnesses or to change your eye color? Like what what are the goals of these things? <laughs> it depends on the person. It's kind of a fringe movement. Um, and it's this very fringe part of this movement called biohacking. And it's the idea that like humans can transcend what they are and, and you know, very much superhero style. And so I read an article about one person who injected himself with jellyfish DNA because he was trying to uh, make himself stronger. And I read that and just didn't understand because I was like, did did, was there any way that the DNA would get into your cells? Did you just inject yourself with a whole bunch of like serum that doesn't going to do anything? So yeah, I think that humanity, as is very common, will get a little bit of knowledge and then start seeing what they can do without really going as far as they should on the research front. Uh, well, I guess if people are willing to do weird things to themselves, does the medical, would you say the medical community at least benefits from seeing the outcome. And then you can say, well, that happened that way. Don't do it again. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I think that is, um, unfortunately, a lot of scientific discovery is done um, either because people were willing to try things on themselves or because there were situations where um, people were put through experiments that maybe they didn't know what that experiment was. And it's a horrible thing. But on the silver lining is that we learn a lot and we learn a ton as a scientific community. Now, if a person who is an adult and is willing to do something to themselves and doesn't harm anybody else, then power to you. Like, you know, these people can inject themselves with whatever they want as long as they're not harming somebody else. Um, so I've heard that parents can now choose traits of their babies. Is that true? Are we there yet? To an extent. Extent, I believe um, like we can't say I want my baby to have blue eyes and you know or green eyes or, or brown hair as far as I know and I don't know any medical professional that would uh, do something like that but we do have the ability to say um, you know there is a genetic disease in my family I know I carry it is there a way to make sure that my children does not do not carry that disease? We can do that. And we can do that with uh, genotyping. A lot of in vitro fertilization is making sure that the embryo that is implanted is as healthy as possible. Okay. So that's great. So we've talked about pros. We've talked about cons. Have I missed any other pros or cons? Um, 
I, I don't think so. I think I'll just end the the pros by saying that, you know, there's a lot of good that can be done with CRISPR technology. And uh, I'm really excited to see all the things that humanity can help with without dwelling too much on the negative, you know? Yeah. Okay, well, then let's jump into the speculative fiction side of this discussion. So what would you say is the line between reality and speculative fiction when it comes to gene editing or creating custom humans or mutations? Yeah, um, I think for me, the line is definitely a couple places. So first is the actual technology place. So, um, you know, do is what the novel talking about able to be understood from a technical perspective? Or are they just kind of like, it was a thing in a syringe and we injected it to the person, mm, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I write like that, especially if I'm kind of writing on the edge and I don't quite know what technology to point to. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, when I, I brought up Captain America earlier, the idea that you could inject, you know, one syringe of CRISPR into somebody and it would change every cell in their body, we're not there yet. And I don't know if we'll ever be there just because of the way the body works. Okay. So no Captain America. Okay. But maybe, maybe we have, um, now I'm blanking on his name and I can't believe that. Who's Captain America's best friend who went through like conditioning? Oh, uh, and became... Bucky Barnes. Bucky Barnes. So like, that's a different form of, of change where I, I think they injected him with the serum as well, but they also did mind um, conditioning as well to kind of alter and change who he is. So I feel like that character kind of has a mixture of things that happened to him. Um, I was looking at all the different ways that gene editing or just custom humans um, mutations are represented in fiction. And I came across a couple of categories. One was mutation and hybridization. So that's where you get Frankenstein, X-Men. I thought of Poison Ivy um, because her thing resulted in like an interaction with one of her plants or whatever it is that she was working with uh, the poison from her plants and then Catwoman from Batman returns. She becomes Catwoman after the cats like lick up her blood and clean her wounds and some mm. sort of transfer I'm guessing happened. So like a weird mutation or hybridization happened there. Um, then there, there's cloning, which mm -hmm. you get your Jurassic park, right? Cause those dinosaurs are a combination of like different animals. Correct. Um, yeah with with whatever it is that they found inside of the wasp and then um star wars episode two of course the clones <laughs> there <laughs> but then you get into genetic engineering and that's where we have blade runner and then there's a book by frank herbert called the white plague which describes the use of genetic engineering to create a pathogen which specifically killed women and then there is the selective breeding in dune so what do you think of those uh, categories mutation hybridization cloning and genetic engineering as far as capturing custom humans and gene editing um, in fiction yeah I think that the cool thing is that a lot of it is teetering on the edge of possible which is my favorite place in speculative fiction to be um, kind of you know where we know what we have and in order to get to this place it's a very small mental jump and so in the sense of mutation and hybridization um, yeah the the idea that you could have some event that changes your DNA and produces something different, something we've never seen before, um, is possible. It is less likely on an individual footing and much more likely on a population footing. We know that evolution does not affect individuals. It affects populations. Really? And oh, I didn't. okay. Maybe I never really thought of it that way. That's interesting. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So, um, and just, you know, two sentences about that is if you have a population of lizards and one of the lizards is bigger, stronger, faster than the other ones, it doesn't matter if that lizard never reproduces and never passes on that good mutation to the rest of the population. And so um, what often ends up happening is that organisms with successful mutations reproduce more, organisms with less successful mutations reproduce less. And over time, you see this population um, veer towards whatever is most successful for them in their environment at the time. Now, I also understand that when we're writing stories, like I said, we want to write a character first story. So it is going to be maybe less intriguing to say, you know, we have this population of people that evolved very slowly, and now this is all kind of normalized. It's much more fun on a story perspective to say this happened to this one person. And now that one person kind of has to figure out how they're going to handle that. When I think of Spider-Man, that's a big part of his arc is kind of going from nerdy kid who thought he knew what his future was to saving New York City pretty much every Sunday. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, yeah, so the, the kind of bottom line is that mutations are totally possible and they're a lot of fun to think about on uh, an individual level. The idea that a genetic mutation would give you laser vision is maybe not kind of where we are because you have to think about you need the structures to do whatever the mutation wants you to do. So if you don't have anything in your eyes that will generate a laser beam, then that mutation is not going to be possible for you. So at this point, would we have to be more Frankenstein and like shove laser beams in our heads and just hope our <laughs> body doesn't reject it? <laughs> at this point in time, yes, cybernetic enhancement is going to be um, much more extreme than a genetic enhancement. A genetic enhancement would be much more along the lines of like, I could jump 12 feet instead of six. Mm, okay, I see. So then, do you, okay, do you see an, a need uh, it seems like in a lot of our stories, there's a lot of enforced genetic editing or evolution or mutation um, for the circumstances of the story. But do you see examples of evolution right now in our own population around the globe? Do we see variety of what different humans can do? Is that even a thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, evolution is always present as long as you have a, um, you know, a population that is reproducing and that is continuing to have generation after generation you will have evolution no matter what one of the places that you can see evolution in yourself and this is a really fun um, thing that you can do is if you lay your arm flat on a table and you touch your thumb to your pinky and tilt it towards your elbow see if you have a ridge on your wrist so i do not i have no muscle when i touch my thumb to my pinky and that means that my body no longer codes for that specific muscle because my body has not swung through trees in generations. And so uh, that has been taken out of my DNA. Are you talking about the line that goes down your wrist? That yeah. Pops so up? that pops up. Yeah. Like so a little vein. You don't have that? Oh, that, mm -hmm. I thought that was a vein. I thought that that's what <laughs> I thought that was where my blood was. That's not. Is that something else? No, it's like a little ridge um, and it's it's skin colored. It's a muscle. So that does, does that mean I recently my my great grandparents swung through trees? <laughs> All it means is that your genetic code has kept that uh, that mutation. It it has not kind of faded out from your genetic line, which is really cool. And it's cool that we can see a difference in genes from me to you when we're living in the same time in the same country, right? Uh, you know, similar uh, even ages. I think within ten years of each other. So. Mut mutations and genetics and evolution are always happening. They're always changing. Well, I'm convinced when I went to my stepsister's graduation, she graduated from high school this year. I went down to the football field after the celebration and granted girls wear heels. Yes. But I used to be the tallest, like one of the tall ones when I was graduating years ago, I, I stand at 510. I went down there and I was the shorty. I was shorter then all those kids, I'm like, what is happening? Like they're getting so tall. And I don't know if that's just like that particular school, but I remember being like, this is weird. I've never felt this, this small before. So I feel like they just keep growing. And I remember my mom, um, who's five, two would always comment about how me and my brother were so tall. And it's now I'm saying the same thing about the next generation. It's just kind of interesting to see. Yeah, absolutely. Humans are taller now than they have been ever. Um, and some of that has to do with like a human growth hormones or any growth hormones that are oh, in our yeah. food. But most of that has to do with just humans are more successful in the world when they are larger. And so uh, the genetic patterns are showing that. And so I always think when I read, you know, vampire stories or whatever, and you have this like 400 year old vampire that's six two, And I'm <laughs> like, he was either a freak in his time or we're just applying modern standards to somebody that would absolutely not have those genetic codes. Of course, uh, certain populations have always been tall. So if you look at um, Celtic people and Celtic skeletons that we've found, found, many of them are over six feet tall. And those date back many, many, many years, hundreds of years. So it just depends on kind of where from and um, and how those populations have evolved. So when we're eating food that has growth hormones in it, like milk, for example, what is that? Is that affecting our DNA? Is that affecting us? Like, how is that affecting us? Yeah. So luckily not changing your DNA. Um, and I know that a lot of people are really scared about that, that like eating genetically modified organisms will change your own DNA. I'm here to tell you, luckily not true. 
Um, but what it will do is because your brain naturally produces growth hormone when it's time to grow, right? We start out as little babies. We end up as anywhere between, you know, four foot nine and six foot two for most of us. So hor growth hormone has to be there somewhere. Growth hormone has to make us get longer limbs and everything like that. If you take that hormone externally, so if you get it from your food, it's the same thing as if your brain released it. So it's not changing your DNA, but your body reacts as if the your your brain made that in the first place oh so it's not the cow's hormone it's mine or the whatever the cow had it, it my body thinks it's my growth hormone right it is the cow's hormone your body just thinks it's yours and so mm -hmm. applies it to the cells as it would interesting okay so then when you're writing how do you like to incorporate or have you or what is your favorite way of incorporating gene editing or modifications to stories yeah yeah. So um, my the novel that I uh, just finished was the best way I can describe it as, is as a like lesbian Jason Bourne. Um, and so she's this kind of modified genetically and cybernetically modified asset. And um, she is kind of navigating the world as somebody who was made bottom up in a lab. Um, and so when I was looking at, okay, you know, I want this to be obviously a speculative, speculative fiction story, and I also want it to be grounded in some amount of reality. So I made sure that everything that I was adding to this character was not something that was too far of a leap forward. So she didn't have like wings sprouting from her back that had been grafted on. Um, and there's nothing wrong with stories that do. That's awesome. It's just a further leap than I wanted to take. Okay. So, um, Interesting. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, so she is, she's tall. She's like 6'4". She yeah. has uh, a lot more muscle than maybe the average person would. Um, you know, her neurons have increased myelin sheaths, so she's able to react faster. So everything that I gave her, I tried to ground in something that we knew um, and something that I had at least a little bit of familiarity with. That I love that. That makes me think of Andy Ware's books in general where he they're all about space but he puts enough of what sounds like science <laughs> in the books mm -hmm. that I'm like okay like the Martian and then most recently Project Hail Project Hail Mary I think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um and I read them and I'm not a science person and but I love that there's enough of it integrated in there to make it feel like, oh my gosh, this does feel tangible and possible. So I love that you're also kind of doing that as well, where you re reading about this character and you feel like, oh gosh, I wonder if this could happen. And if not now, why not? <laughs> right. And one of the things that I absolutely love about Andy Weir's style of writing is that his characters always feel so attainable. You know, you're talking about people with extensive scientific training. And so it is plausible that they would know a little bit about everything. And his characters make mistakes. I love that because research is all about figuring out why things went wrong. Um, I think that we have this idea in culture and a lot of it comes from like Hollywood where you do the experiment once it goes perfect and you learn everything that you need to learn. And that's so far from what it actually is. It's failure over and over and over again. And every single failure teaches you something new. Um, and I love that Andy Weir kind of puts that in his books. I remember the scene from The Martian where... Um, the, uh, oh, I forget the main character's name. I know he's played by Matt Damon in the movie, mm. um, but the character is attempting to make water and that is a very combustible reaction. It's incredibly exothermic. Um, and the character forgot to account for the air that he was breathing, the fact that he was putting extra oxygen into the air on accident because we don't consume all of the oxygen that we breathe in. Um, and I think in the book, the character knew that there was some amount of oxygen he was adding, but he did not know how much it was. He didn't know the number and he had no way to look it up. So he just kind of went ahead with the calculations and to a very catastrophic end, a hilariously catastrophic end because everything was okay and the character was fine. But I just loved that that little piece was in there. Well, that that it it's cool for people that are watching or reading because you don't know those risks, right? And sometimes, as you were saying, the best way to learn is to see the mistakes. And now that's 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 ingrained. And you'll forever mm -hmm. remember that water is combustible, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So for the interest of time, I wanted to get to our listener questions. Are you ready? Love that. Yes. Okay. Listener questions are always kind of fun because they send them ahead of time and they have no context other than I talked about gene editing. So uh, here's what we have and we'll just work our way through them. Okay. 
Yeah. All right. Number one, can it give me superheroes? I'm sorry. Can it give me superpowers without damaging and killing me? Great question. And I was actually going to touch on this. So with any kind of um, modification to a human body, there are definitely downsides. So one thing that you see in Olympic gymnasts is that the more muscular the gymnast, the less flexible because muscle is really difficult to stretch. And so there are always going to be downsides to any single modification, especially if that modification is taken out of the environment that it was meant to be in. So if you think of a zebra, Zebras work really, really well when they are together in a group. And if you have one zebra standing alone on the plane, it's really easy to see him. Oh, okay. All right. Here's a question I think is actually a really good one. Is there a way that this is not eugenics? Yes. And that has to do with um, responsible and ethical oversight. So the way that a lot of developed countries have tackled this oversight is to only allow CRISPR to be used to um, cure a disease with no other known cure that is uh, debilitating to the individual with the disease. So we talk about sickle cell anemia. People with sickle cell anemia have a very difficult time living normal lives, um, even going to work, going upstairs. There are things that are very, very difficult for them because their body is not carrying the oxygen that it needs to carry. So when you look at treating that, um, that is an amazing thing because you're making somebody's life better without taking away um, the parts of them that may be very inherent to their identity. And so then I guess what this person's probably wondering is if we ever got to the point of gene editing where we started choosing skin and eye and hair color, then that depending on what kind of regulations are available, we could risk going into that. But right now, as it's currently presented, that's not an option, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. We <laughs> got to watch out for that one though, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And even um, the the woman who was part of the team that made CRISPR um, talks a lot about you know the responsibility that she feels in ensuring that her legacy and, and what is being used with this technology is only to help and never to harm. Is there a chance that CRISPR gets a competitor that that is like okay with doing that? I am, um, you know, never to underestimate the capacity of humans and, and their, um, their, you know, yeah, crazy their, desires. Their solutions, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I'm sure that like anything, this can absolutely be used for negative at the same way that any medical technology and any medical advancement can have negative effects. Um, and it's, you know, going to be up to the the rest of us to kind of help each other navigate that and help make sure that um, if an oversight is made, if a step is made in the wrong direction, that that is pulled back. Um, whether, you know, you can do it in a number of ways. You can pull funding from a research project that is unethical. Um, you can shut down labs. You can, you know, there are ways to make sure that things stay ethical um, that don't have to come from government oversight, because I know a lot of people are very nervous about government oversight and the way that that has been mishandled in the past. Interesting. Okay. This next question, I don't quite understand because I haven't seen Gattaca or read Gattaca I don't know what Gattaca is but mm -hmm. why gene editing when Gattaca do you I'm understand not sure I understand that question either okay uh, sorry listener <laughs> no, that's okay let's do uh, let's do a quick let me see if I can find anything on Gattaca and maybe it'll Gattaca bar. is a show oh it's a it's a drama film came out in 1997 American dystopian sci-fi starring Ethan Hawke. Oh, then I need to go watch it. And it has Jude Law, it has Uma Thurman. Why haven't I watched That's this? It's a stacked cast. I love that. Okay. So yeah, it is a biopunk version of a future society driven by eugenics, um, where potential children are conceived through genetic selection to ensure they possess the best hereditary traits. So why gene editing when Gattaca? The answer to that, I think, is that because I would like to think that as a society, we can hold ourselves to a very high standard acknowledge the risks and still push forward to the benefits of the globe. Um, because like we talked about, CRISPR doesn't only have to be used on humans. We can use it in agriculture to use less room 
and make the same amount of food. That's amazing on an ecological perspective. We don't have to, you know, burn down the rainforest to make coffee plantations. We can have coffee plantations that produce more beans, so we don't need more room. Um, so I think that the the ability for CRISPR to do good far outweighs the risk of CRISPR doing bad. And as long as we keep uh, a very realistic view that there is a way that this could go bad, and we're never going to let that happen, then we shouldn't deny ourselves the uh, the amazing future that we could have. Interesting. Uh, so what is there when you're talking about the integrity and ethics of the whole of the whole process? We talk all, I've heard a lot of people make comments about how the food today is abundant, right? Like look in the grocery store, you have giant broccolis and giant apples and all that stuff. But some people have made the argument that the genetically modified foods may not be as nutritious as the original. Now, if, I don't know whether or not that's true, but is that more of a, is that a push and pull between the science and basically the, the corporate side of, of these things, like the making, you know, the money and making the money and the margins? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that very rightfully so people look around and they see how controlled everything around us is. Um, and, and maybe they want some semblance of, you know, being able to take that control back. And one way that a lot of people have decided to do that is through non-genetically modified organisms or making sure that they buy produce from local farmers, which is amazing. And um, there is nothing wrong with those those organisms. There's nothing wrong with big broccoli. There's nothing wrong with, you know, the <laughs> strawberries that have polyploidy. Um, polyploidy is a situation where a plant has double or triple the amount of chromosomes it actually needs. And unlike a uh, animal organism, which would not do very well in that situation and likely would not even make it to adulthood, plants do really well. They just kind of make bigger fruit. They're like, oh, extra chromosomes, more fruit. Um, and there's nothing okay. wrong with those extra fruits. There's nothing wrong with those extra chromosomes. Okay, I learned something today. Extra chromosome strawberries. Can you <laughs> yeah. alter your genes by sitting in a microwave? I mean, I, I imagine you die, but I mean, like, <laughs> can you alter your genes in the process? Um, no, because what a microwave does, a microwave actually causes water molecules to vibrate at a specific frequency, specifically the frequency of the microwaves, and that the vibration of the water molecules is what causes friction, which heats up whatever is inside of it. So the reason that a microwave oven works is because it causes friction inside the molecules of the food, and then that cooks it kind of from the inside out. Um, so I do not recommend sitting in a microwave because we are made of a lot of water and I do not want anyone to have to cook themselves from the inside out. Please don't do that. You're very smart. <laughs> You're like breaking down the, the process of microwaves. I've seen a couple movies where someone got put inside. It seems like people are very fascinated by this idea. Um, and so obviously not a real uh, setup, but like they people really like to explore what would happen to someone if they go in a microwave. And it's always like this like internal combustion where their head explodes or something like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, essentially you kind of boil yourself from the inside out. Oh. But I think there's something um, if there is a bright side here. So there's something that occurs in your brain where in any given situation, your brain wants to make a choice where it knows exactly what will happen. And it's the same feeling when you're at a, the top of a really tall building and you're like, you know, face pressed up against the glass and you're looking down, you're like, what if I jump? Mm -hmm. Not because you at all want to jump, you don't, but like a small part of your brain does that. The only reason is because you know exactly what will happen if you do. And so the part of your brain that enjoys control and likes to make sure that it knows what's gonna happen next that is the choice with 100% certainty. And so there's a very small part of your brain that likes that choice. And I think a lot of these like microwave scenes come from the same place. We know exactly what's going to happen. So there's a very small part of our brain that's like, that's the choice. Ooh, that's actually kind of comforting to know that there's a rationale behind that weird impulsive feeling. Right. Yeah. If gene editing was useful, why isn't it featured in more Marvel movies? I mean, I didn't I realize Captain America, that was a gene edit, right? Captain yeah, America. they called it serum. But serum. I mean, the only the only way to change somebody like that and make them immortal and all of the things is to kind of change them from the ground up every single cell. Um, I think that um, a lot of Marvel characters, when you look into them, do have a lot of genetics applied to them. I mean, in the entire X-Men series, they're called mutants for a reason, because there are mutations in their DNA that cause them to look and have the powers that they have. Um, 
but when you look at when these comics were kind of first conceived and when they first appeared in the modern mainstream, we definitely did not have as much of the knowledge as we have now. When you think of the, um, the Human Genome Project, I mean, the entire human DNA sequence wasn't even completed until uh, between 1997 and 2001, I believe, and I could be wrong on those years. Um, but so it is not until in modern memory that we really have an understanding of what genes are, what they do, um, and so we can put that into fiction now because we, we a larger populace does have an understanding of that. Whereas I think if, you know, in the 19, uh, gosh, Captain America specifically is from the 40s, I believe, maybe even earlier. But in the 40s, we had no idea what DNA could do and what the possibilities were. So I don't fault the writers for not putting that in there. Well, that'll just be the next generation of, of superheroes, right? Because now we know about gene editing and our grand our grandkids could listen to all of that yeah um even the uh i think it's on it's either on hulu or amazon prime uh the boys that whole series talks a lot about you know designer superheroes and if you know what the gene mutation is to get superheroes are there companies that would absolutely exploit that and the answer in the universe of the boys is what happens when that is the case mm-hmm I love that show. It's it's such a gritty, dark look at society, but it's addicting and I love it. Yes. And I mean, Carl Urban, I've just decided that Carl Urban in anything, I will watch him because he's such a good actor. Yeah. And oh, and I got to meet him at a Comic-Con a couple of years oh. ago. He called me beautiful. I will hold on to that for my entire life. <laughs> that I mean, like life achieved at that point like you know <laughs> yeah it was one of those meet and greets and he sees me he comes up he goes oh he goes hello beautiful and kind of pulls me in for a photo and I'm like I've been watching him since the Xena and Hercules days where he played Cupid mm-hmm. um I just love him so good for him I'm glad that he was able to get that role um I saw him before he got the boys so it's just always kind of cool to see that all right and our last listener question is what creates a fatal gene edit Oh, fascinating. So a fatal gene edit um, occurs anytime that a, uh, a metabolic pathway required for life is interrupted. So it, that could be any number of things when you have something as complicated as a human um, or in a plant, it could be, you know, plants need nitrogen. So if a gene edit accidentally prevents plants from uptaking nitrogen from the soil, that would not be a sustainable condition. That plant it would be a fatal mutation. Um, in humans, if, for example, um, if a pathway that allowed the body to make energy from food was interrupted, then that body would have no way of getting energy and that would be a fatal mutation. So any mutation that interrupts required processes for life would be a fatal mutation. Um, and that can happen in a couple different ways. You can accidentally delete part of the gene. Um, you can insert uh, DNA sequence into the wrong part of the gene. And so the protein is not made in the correct way. You can have what's called a frame shift mutation, which is when you accidentally insert uh, one or two or more letters in the wrong place. And then that makes everything after it wrong. So there's a lot of different ways to have a fatal mutation, uh, but that's just some of them. Okay. So I guess, is this like a cautionary tale so that I guess this is actually really good advice for our writers so they want they want to explore all the different ways that they're going to do gene editing and now they have some ideas on why their character possibly doesn't survive the the procedure or the yeah if you have a fatal gene mutation more than likely um that organism will not be born or if it's a plant then the seed won't sprout or whatever it is so gene fatal gene mutations become very apparent um very early on. Is it easier to do gene mutations before birth than it is after? Yes. Um, and depending on, of course, ethics, right? Because you want to, in the scientific community, we do want to make sure that there is consent going on. Um, but when an organism is four cells, it's a lot easier to change four cells than it is to change a hundred thousand. Okay. I have one final question for you. I wanted to make sure first that you got a chance to say everything that you wanted to say before I asked it. Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. What do we fear most about gene editing? Do we fear the technology or the human intent? I think uh, it is always a combination of both. Humans inherently fear what they don't know. 
And that is a very healthy fear that has kept us alive for all of the time that we've been on the planet. And I think that anyone who has studied, studied history knows that there is always a possibility of um, malintent and malpractice. And that is a very real fear and we should keep it with us. So I think the bigger fear is definitely other humans, um, just because that is more likely going to be um, the initial issue. Um, yeah. All right. And then, of course, I guess maybe I should uh, do the opposite of that and ask you, what is one good positive golden light to leave us with? Uh, that with this technology, the possibility of better lives for so many people opens up. And uh, not only that, but it also leads us down a path of more understanding of our own genomes, which uh, in turn gives us a better understanding of ourselves, where we come from, and maybe where we're headed. And so that I think is always a good thing. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, do you have any final remarks or notes to leave with our listeners? Uh, I don't think so. Happy writing to everybody. I wish you all the best. Please go out there, write some amazing stories around uh, genetic evolution and uh, genetic mutations, and I cannot wait to read all of them. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer-run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.